Kia ora i te whanau o te kōna i pūrangi nei tūtāne. Nau mai, ko Apawātini tōku ingoa. Hello to Becoming Tāne podcast family. Welcome, my name is Apawātini. Growing great guys is one of the values of our podcast. Guys can become great through applying lessons learned from not only the stories shared so far in this season, but also in future seasons to come. Today's episode is titled WIN, which stands for What's Important Now. This is episode 7 of season 1. We only have one more episode of our very first season. Following next week's episode, we'll be having a short break of a couple of weeks before we launch season 2 in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. I'm really looking forward to sharing our guest story with you today. Today's guest is Seth Haynes. Before we talk to Seth today, let me give you some background information about him. Seth was born in Cape Town, South Africa and moved to New Zealand when he was 14. Seth has five siblings and he is the eldest. Seth attended Fairburn College in South Africa and when he arrived in New Zealand, he went to Trident High School in Whakatane. Seth attended Waikato University where he received a Bachelor in Social Science, majoring in Psychology, and has also completed his Master's in Applied Psychology. Seth has worked as a talent finder and a talent advisor with consult recruitment, organisational psychology and business consultant, and business psychology consultant with The Effect. Seth has been married to his wife Kate for three years. Kia ora Seth, nā mahi ki a koe, e whakawhiti kōrero ki au i tēnei rā. Hi Seth, thank you for speaking with me today. Hey, thanks for having me up, I appreciate it. Okay Seth, I believe that we are who we are because of the sum of our life experiences. So Seth, for you, what two events in your life has had the greatest impact on you? Two events, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I would say the 2019 Rugby World Cup, South Africa winning, but Hey, you know, I think there's a few things that should probably precede that. Yeah, look, it's an interesting one. I think when I, I'm the oldest of six, and in my family, we have triplets, right? I was quite old, actually, when they were born. So when they were born, I think my parents needed a lot of help. And when they were born, I had a lot, I had a lot to do with their growing up and their birth and helping out. And I think that event was, in a way, it was, I guess, a bad thing, but also a, a very good thing. It helped me to grow up a little bit more. And help out around the house a bit more and it actually matured me quite quickly. In terms of some other stuff, I know when, when I was a little younger, I, when I was in primary school, actually, I had, a, I had a bit of a brush with the law. I've never really told many people this. I actually went down a bit of a pathway just once or twice. I actually got caught doing some illicit drugs once with some friends. I've only done it once and once since. And that was a lesson. It was a hard lesson I learned. And my parents, I think seeing them and their reaction you know, I was, a, I was a good student, a straight-A student, played loads of sport, and it was a blip on my radar. But actually, I'm thankful of that bad experience. It actually turned out to be quite a good experience for me later on in life. It was a lesson that I learned then, and the shame and the guilt and the humiliation that I felt. And I know in a South African family, that, that humiliation that your parents feel is sometimes even greater than your own. And just to see that I disappointed them was a lesson that I learned. But subsequent to that, it's actually shaped a lot of my worldview and and actually opened me up a little bit more to experience things and yeah it was tough at the time but looking back on it and and the conversations that I've had with my parents subsequent to that is 
it's been interesting. So yeah, I would, I would say my, my brief brush, brush with the law, maybe. How has that shaped your worldview? Can you share something more about that? I think what, what I've noticed when, when I was younger and potentially when I went to university as well, I noticed that there were, there were two types of kids, right? One, one, you know, there was the types of kids that were opened up to experience from a young age. Their parents gave them good lessons in life. They experienced things, whether it be alcohol or social encounters. And they, they really thrived in areas when they had more freedom and they were given more reign at university. And you really saw them thrive because they were able to experience these things a little early in life. And then there's the second group, which I felt and my perception was that they maybe hadn't experienced as much. They were quite closed off to a lot of experiences in their life. Now, I'm not saying they should have done drugs at an early age. It's not at all what I'm endorsing. However, uh, what I am saying is that I noticed in their lives that they had largely been sheltered to, to a lot of that worldly experience that I think is so valuable. And when they came to uni, a lot of them subsequently kind of came off the rails, but that freedom was too much. And because of that, I found myself in the first group. Um, and I always thought to myself, if I ever raise kids, um, and I try and instill this in my siblings is to go out there, experience life and learn the lessons. Because I think that that worldly maturity actually shapes you, shapes your inferences on life. And um, ultimately for me, it made me a better person. So I'd like to think that I'll make others a better people as well. Having triplets, that would have changed your world. Yeah, interesting one. I think first and foremost, well, you learn at a young age quite a lot about babies. So yeah, how to feed them, burp them, clean them. I mean, now I look at it and my wife says, you know, it's prepared me quite well. But I think from, from that age, it was me and, and two other siblings, three of us, right? And we got the, the lion's share of our parents' attention. We, we, got, we got things that we needed, uh, probably in abundance to be honest, probably spoiled to a degree. When you have to share it with six, suddenly you realize that, I guess you realize that not, you know, the world isn't about you. You learn to appreciate the fact that there are other people in your bubble. But at that age, 13, you know, you're the center of your universe. And suddenly you learn to realize that there are other people that are at the center of their universe and you have to let those people in. Suddenly that time and that, that love and affection needs to be shared. And it's a lesson that you learn quite harshly. I mean, in the beginning, you probably rebel against it like anybody. But over time, um, yeah, it teaches you to open up and, and to be, yeah, to be more generous, I think, with, with your time and your parents' time as well. So, yeah, pro- probably that learning to share maybe from, from a young age and not just physical things, but psychological elements as well. Kia ora te whanau. Matu Taira here from Arise Movement. I want to share this amazing opportunity with the brothers listening to Becoming Tane right now to join us on a journey of discovering and redefining what it means to be a man. The Arise Movement is all about providing men and high school age boys with a safe space to share authentically about what we're dealing with as fathers and sons and in the many roles and responsibilities we have in life. Our mentoring and initiation program will empower men as well as mentor and initiate boys into manhood. This program will provide experiences, workshops and opportunities for fathers and sons, uncles and nephews, men and boys to develop and gain skills necessary to navigate manhood and life. The main intention of the Arise movement is to empower men and boys to be free and fully self-expressed, to ensure women and girls are safe and secure 
in whānau, a strong and thriving. Now, if this kaupapa resonates with you, I invite you to take action to create the life you really want for you and your whānau. If you're keen to get involved, you can find us on Facebook at the Arise Movement Facebook page. Matika, maranga, it's time to arise. Welcome back to the podcast. So when you moved to New Zealand, what was that experience like for you? I can't speak for my parents so much, but definitely for me, it was, it was out of this world. I mean, I went from not really knowing anything about New Zealand, not even having heard of New Zealand. I mean, outside of rugby, suddenly, you know, I'm having to research this and research that and mum's throwing things at me and dad's saying this. And that before, before you knew it, the year's gone and you're over here um, in a Hopi beach in Pakatanes. Yeah, it was, it was wild. It was crazy. And I think initially there was probably a bit of teething. The excitement wears off. And then, it, you know, you, you start to miss the things that you've been so accustomed to for 14 years. But and over time, you get used to it. But yeah, initially it was exciting, but then it becomes then it becomes challenging because you realise, hey, this isn't a holiday. You actually need to bed down and and do schoolwork and go to school and play sport. And and then there's that whole rigmarole of adjusting to school and your teenage years, which is tough. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. That was a tough thing as well. 14 years old, coming to a new school. Most of these kids in a small community have grown up with each other. They know each other. And there's this outsider coming in, which is another thing that was quite difficult to traverse as well. So, yeah, very exciting, but also quite daunting, I think, for, for me at my life stage. So that adjustment as a 14-year-old, what was the toughest part about that? I think for me, the toughest part would have to be that sense of relatedness with other kids. It took me a little while to, to find that. I think when you first come and you're, you're an immigrant or you're somebody from another country coming to school, it's exciting, right? But over time, that wears off. And suddenly, everybody then goes to their own little friend groups and, and you're sort of left standing in the middle there. And they realize, hey, this, this isn't just an exchange. The guy's been going back to South Africa. He's staying here. So then you have to find that social group that's, that's yours that you connect with. And that took a little while. And that was probably the most challenging part at that point. I would have to say that I wanted to go back. Once I'd gone beyond that, I'd considered even going back. We were in serious discussions about me going to live with family back in South Africa because I hadn't quite found that. And it took, yeah, it probably took about six months to a year for me to fully find a friend group that are still to this day are, a friend, are best friends of mine. What was that thing that you were able to connect with? Tough question. I would say initially it was probably... I guess the geographical boundary. So a lot of those people lived in Ohope Beach with me. We traveled on the bus. We got to connect with each other. Then beyond that, probably it came down to two of them are, are not originally from here as well. So we connected for that. One's German, one was South African as well. So yeah, we connected on that way. They've been here the, almost their entire lives. So there was that. You know, other things were probably, yeah, the, I guess the connection on similar kind of family kind of morals, the closeness of the families and just how transparent and honest and loving they were with their families. That resonated with me because that's, that's how we are as a family, right? Nothing gets hidden and it's all out there and we, you know, we're very close. We are very close in that family. So those are probably some of the things. Throughout your life so far, or which two people have made the biggest impact on you? That's an interesting question, eh? My wife, Kate, for one, but also by extension, her family, who took me in when, I guess, when we started dating back in 2010, 11. And I, I was in a space where I didn't have a lot of support. 
at that stage, my family had moved back to South Africa and I'd made the decision to stay. So I was here alone, flatting, no support. And, and I think Kate was there for me in a way that nobody else could be. And as well as that, so, her, so were her family. So by extension, them as well. And I would be remiss if I didn't say my mum, my mother, who a pretty phenomenal woman. And again, by extension, my family behind her, uh, all the siblings, my, my, my father, Paps, we call him Paps. Paps has been huge for me in my life. So yeah, it's those, maybe those one, those singular people, but also there's, there's a team behind them. Is your family still in South Africa? No, so they have come back. So they, they moved over here, then they decided to go back about a year into my university studies. They went back for a few years and then they came back probably 2015. So they've been here, they've been up in Auckland since then. So they are back now. But at that stage, it was, it was quite a big shift for me. I just sort of left home. I'd been at uni for a year, halls of residence, you know, all the shenanigans, no support. And a lot of those, you know, a lot of people have families that they go back to every week and I didn't sort of have that. So, and then, you know, comes along Kate, we meet, we start dating and, and I get her family as a bonus, which is awesome. So I got to experience those things, not with my nuclear family, but hers as well. So influential. What is love? Love is the amount of respect you have for someone or something. Love is a connection so strong where understanding outweighs judgment. A willingness to sacrifice for someone even to your own detriment. Love is something that comes from within. And it's a mixture of emotions, I feel. Love is uh, providing others with whatever they need at, in their time of need, whether it be support, encouragement, uh, financial support, anything. Love is a choice to learn what it is for me, a choice to learn what it is for others, and a choice to keep growing in it. Love is the connection between two individuals or an individual and, and a group of people that causes you to see the good in them and your thoughts, words, actions in relation to them to help that goodness increase. Love for me is perfect. Love is without conditions or hidden agendas. For me, I liken it to having a child. It just brings joy. Love is an emotion that has no limits. It's a form of energy you feel when you connect with something like on a, on a really deeper level. What is your definition of love? Welcome back to the podcast. I believe we are all born with a superpower or superpowers. I define a superpower as a particular skill, ability or attribute that makes you you. It is your secret source. It is what people remember about you. So in saying that, Seth, what is your superpower? I mean, I'm just, a, I'm just a regular guy, so I don't think I have a super skill. I can't say, you know, I, you know, I kick a ball like Bowden Barrett or as fit as Bowden Barrett, but I'd like to think that I thought about an attribute, and for me, if I had to think about what my superpower would, would probably be, the, I guess, my loyalty to people and my ability to kind of give to those people without reciprocity. You know, I have a very small circle, and as you know, as you've heard before, you know, I've, I've got best friends that I've, that I've known since I was 14. I have a small circle because of that. And I'm fiercely loyal to those people in that circle. I'll give everything I have. That, you know, I, I like to think I'm the sort of person that 
any of my friends can call me up four o'clock in the morning and say, Steph, I need you. And I'll, I won't even ask the question. I'll be there no matter what. Cause that to me is, is everything family and friends. And yeah. So I, I think probably, probably being loyal to, to the people that I love and trust. If I was to have sort of a, a skill or, or a secret sauce, one other thing, it's probably just the fact that I'm, I'm really kind of determined and disciplined to, to achieve the things I want to achieve in life. I've always been of the mindset that, hey, if you want something, get it. Go find it, work for it, and get it. Nothing stops you. Life's too short, man. It's, it's way too short. So, yeah, enjoy the things you want to enjoy and, yeah, and experience everything that you can. So, yeah, probably those two. Sorry, I've given you two there, but. Let me read what your wife has written or your significant other, your wife has written as your superpower. She said, firstly, Seth is one of the most intrinsically motivated people I know. He gets out of bed at ridiculous hours of the morning in order to fit an exercise as you deem it's important while still being able to make an 8 a.m. meeting. He often says if people want it, they'll make time for it. This is a superpower, whether it is exercising every day, a rain, hail or shine, or achieving a goal of getting his motorbike license or graduating with his master's. Though encouragement is nice, Seth does not need it. He has all the internal drive necessary for any task. As a partner who loves a sleep-in, however, I have not always viewed it as a superpower. <laughs> Another one that, that she said... Second superpower is hard to explain. The word that comes to mind is Afrikaans word, G's, and I might have pronounced that wrong, which is similar to mana. Seth has a presence about him. Some people refer to it as being direct. Others value it because he adds in little touches like learning someone's name and not being afraid to use it irrespective of how difficult it is to pronounce. His memory capacity for names far outweighs mine. But this superpower goes beyond that and is hard to articulate. Lastly, Seth has always had a drive to help people. I think that is what drew him to psychology in the first place. He loves to learn about the human brain and how it works and what causes certain reaction. He believes that even if only one person has a light bulb moment, then he has done his job and uses his knowledge, everything at his disposal to try and create environments and moments to facilitate this. So those are the superpowers that your wife mentioned. What I find interesting is the two things that you mentioned as your superpower, I think she also mentioned it. Because mm. I often believe that how we view ourselves is often different to how people view you. And that difference, I think, is an interesting thing. Mm. But here, obviously, you've mentioned the same thing. So you talked about being fiercely loyal to your, your circle of friends mm. and the, the want to help them if needed and to help people. I think that's what she mentioned in that last section there is exactly mm. the same thing. You also mentioned the stuff about being, if you want something, go out and get it. You can do it. And she talked about being intrinsically motivated. I mm. think it's the same thing. Can you explain what that African word and <laughs> pronounce it properly for me? Yeah, yeah. So we, in Afrikaans, we, we call it hiss. Ah, there you so go. It's, uh, yeah, it's an Afrikaans word. It's called hiss. And it translates to spirit or, yeah, in, in a way, if, if you had to think about it, yeah, it's, it's 
probably mana. Mana would be the best, probably the way we would think about it. And I guess from the New Zealand cultural context, but yeah, it's just about having that, that feeling that without saying anything, with just that engagement, you leave feeling like, Hey man, that guy, he just has it, you know, that's a pretty humbling thing to hear. Actually. I mean, I never really thought that I was that person. Yeah. So that's what, that's what Hess is all about. That spirit. On your business website, your company is called The Effect, it identified that your speciality is psychological risk assessment. What is psychological risk assessment? It's a relatively up-and-coming area in safety and health and well-being in, in, in organizations. And essentially, if you think about it, like a coin, right? On the one side, we have traditional health and safety, which is traditionally captured physical risk in the environment, right? Slips, trips falls, wires, that sort of stuff. And we all know that stuff, right? We took a box and we, we hide it and, it's, you know, we protect our people from it. And in some spaces, we absolutely, we 100% need it. Now, on the other side of that coin, we also have psychological risk, risk to our mental well-being, to, to the stuff that we use more often, which is the brain. And that's what I do in organizations. I help them to understand and establish what those risks are in their environment. That could be bullying. It could be abuse. It could be high stress, it could be a lack of adequate leadership, it could be a number of things, remote and mobile working conditions, for example, COVID-19. So all of those things pose risks to our psychological health. And what we do, what I do is go in and help them understand that we do an analysis, we generate reports, and we make suggestions for work streams, how they can implement to protect their people so that they can thrive at work. That's, and that's it. So it's just so, the flip side of that health and safety coin. So um, going through the whole COVID-19, I could imagine that you could have been very busy. That's an interesting one. So it, uh, yes, but also not in the ways that you think. So, I mean, for a lot of people, I mean, COVID is, uh, is it's a survival space, right? We're in a space now where a lot of people are just getting by, right? So I use the analogy with somebody that they're just getting their head above water. They are treating water and they're just getting their head above the water. Once they have the opportunity post-COVID, post-lockdown and integrating back into work and they're able to walk into the beach and suddenly, you know, enjoy the, enjoy the sunshine and the fresh air without having a struggle to breathe, then they can start to think about, hey, actually, the next time this happens, how are we protecting ourselves? What are the risks in our environment and how can we best protect against that? But at the moment, we're so primed for fear. We're primed for COVID, war rhetoric, fear, you know, survival. And, and that in no way can good decision-making be made long-term for the protection of people when this is happening. So, yeah, I guess in a way we've been busy, but not in the complete risk sense. I'm sure that in time we will 100% be putting more of a focus on psychological health in the future. Interesting. You talk about fear. And lots of people, people struggle with fear and how to manage fear. Do you have any advice in, in that space? Yes, the fear complex, I think, in, in the likes of COVID stems. I mean, what is fear, right? Fear is an acute stress response. That's the brain going, do I fight this stimulus or do I, do I run away from it? And it's, it's impacting us by increasing stress in the body. Now, if you think about what, COVID's doing, COVID is increasing that tenfold. Where that stems from is that people are often focusing on future state. They're often worried about things that are outside of their control and it's inducing fear state. So 
asking a lot of questions like, what if this happens? Could this occur? Well, it's going to happen in six weeks, focusing on a lot of unhelpful future state thoughts. And what I've been trying to help people with is trying to get them to focus on what's important right now. What am I going to be focusing on that's within my control? Because at the end of the day, by trying to overcome future barriers that we have no control over, that is inducing worry and anxiety and stress. And so I tell people, don't focus on those things. Focus on what's within our control, what we can do right now. And that will give us a sense of accomplishment and autonomy and mastery, right? Basic human needs to survive. So that would be my tip, right? Stop unhelpful future state thinking. And if you ask yourself, it's good to think in the future, but if, it's, if you think it's unhelpful, stop, cut it, come back to the now. Ask the, I talk about the win question, right? W-I-N, what's important now? And I leave, I leave that with people. Traditionally, barbershops have been more than just a place for a haircut. Barbershops are safe spaces for men where they can socialise and talk. In Hamilton, Reggie's Barbershop is one of those barbershops, and that has been operating since 2005. At Reggie's Barbershop, you not only get a quality cut, but you get a great environment, great barbers, great conversation, and you're made to feel more than just a number. You don't have to believe what I say. Here is some of the feedback that Reggie gets. Always a cool vibe at Reggie's, nice and chill, few laughs, great atmosphere. Love the way they cut my hair and trim my beard. They really listen to what you want and always keen for yarns. Awesome atmosphere created by awesome people. You guys are amazing. Amazing haircuts and great uplifting kōrero. To make it. Love the vibe, toddler loves the stylish cuts and mumsy loves those competitive prices. This really is the best barbers ever. Reggie is so friendly and does exactly what you're asking for. He did an amazing job with my hubby's hair. Reggie's is always buzzing. Such a great atmosphere and a great asset to Frankton. Sometimes the queues are out the door. During summer, the music is always pumping. My son loves getting his hair cut there. Awesome atmosphere. My husband got his hair cut and beard trimmed, and the barber took his time to talk and gave a very nice personalised service. Would highly recommend. I get my hair cut at Reggie's every month, and I also take my three sons there. The people are friendly and give a great cut, and it's always a good price. In my experience, Reggie's is the best barber shop in H-Town. So if you want a great cut, great company, great conversation, visit Reggie's Barber Shop. Shop 140 Lake Road, Frankton, Hamilton, or call 07-847-5275. Welcome back, Seth. Um, I believe that life is one of our greatest teachers. So with that being said, what has life taught you so far? Taught me a lot, actually. Um, my 29 years today, actually. I think. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Cheers. <laughs> um, one of the big things, and I think what I said to you before that drew me to, to you up in this podcast was that I too believe that everybody has a story. I'm always hugely fascinated by what the lives that people have lived, the, the, the stories that they have. I'm always amazed by that. You know, I think just the other day I looked at a picture of my old man and something that I never knew about him. And he told me this story that I've never heard about his life. And I'm always fascinated by those anecdotes that people don't tell you that the lives, the experiences that they've had. And that's a big one for me. So everybody has a story to never just assume from the outside. What you can see is what you get. 
take the time to ask people the questions and to stop talking for two seconds and listen. I think another lesson is that for me, like we talked about before, I've always been a big believer in working hard to achieve what you want. And for me, that's a big driving force for me. So to achieve anything in life, you have to work hard, right? And I'm, I'm always of the belief, and I think this does stem from my old man. He actually used to tell me, he's like, anything worth doing is worth doing 100%. And that's what I believe as well. And in that process is the learning. I guess the final thing for me is that learning never stops. You know, I thought when I was coming into high school, you know, I was uh, 13, finishing primary school, and I thought I was this big dog, right? I knew everything. I was such a big fish in a small pond, and I thought that life's knowledge was, was infinite, and I knew it then and then. And I hit high school, and I just, I just realized, actually, I'm so far behind what I, what I do know and what I should know. And then when I hit university, it was a whole other thing. I realized that there's so much knowledge and infinite knowledge that I just don't know. So the, the learning journey for me is another big one. It continues to shock me how much I don't know in life, even though I, at one stage I thought I knew everything. So if the listeners were to take one message away from this particular podcast or from your story, what would you want them to take away? Not so much from my story, but I think something I spoke to Kate about this morning actually was what's this idea around, I guess, enjoying the moments in your life. And I, I think like sort of post 25, one thing I have been noticing is that I just, life is just hitting me at such a speed that I sort of miss out on things. And I was saying to her that I often kind of get anxious about the fact that, you know, I have a big weekend coming up and I get anxious about the fact that it's going to end. And I think really what, what I've noticed and what I've started to do is really take stock of, of the moments, the highlights, right. And to enjoy them and to be, be present for them. Because before you know it, they're, they're gone and they're just a memory. It's fleeting and it becomes a memory. So for me, that I think that was prob- that's a big kind of takeaway for me is, is that, you know, so it's a lesson that I learned recently that, hey, you want to enjoy life, be present for those little things. Put, just put the phones away, be present, give people your everything. Give, give those moments your everything. Be there physically and, and psychologically. So yeah, that'd be a big one. I think we're often bombarded with this, this sort of myth that, you know, multitasking is a thing, right? And I'm a firm believer that it is not a thing. I don't believe in multitasking because I know an attentional resources is, can't be split. We just don't work that way. We focus on one thing at a time, but we try to split our attentions. And for me, it's always the case of I'm trying to think to myself, okay, why am I feeling scattered? What am I trying to split my attention to? And I try to singular, have a unitary focus on one thing. If I'm talking to somebody, I'm giving them every bit of attention that I can to make them feel special, I remember their names, or if I'm exercising or I'm out playing rugby, that's all I'm focusing on is the ball and the ruck. Or, and that, for me, it brings more enjoyment. It's, a, it's, it's just taking the time to, to really soak up everything, visually, auditorily, sensually, all of those things. And, yeah, for me, it's just that I'm focusing attention on singular things at a time. All right, last question here for you, Seth. Um, the name of the podcast is called Becoming Tani. I named the podcast this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because Tani Mahuta, one of our atua, um, him and his siblings were responsible for splitting Rangi and Papa. And also behind that responsibility was their desire to learn and grow. Um, and also Tani being the Maori translation for the words man, male, and husband. So in your mind, uh, what does it mean to become a man? When I was sort of thinking about that, I never really 
think of what it is to be a man specifically. And I'm sorry, Mark, it's probably going to disappoint you a little bit, but I, I think rather it's like, what, is it, what does it mean to be a person, right? And what does it mean to, to be a, a good person, hopefully? I always try to treat people with respect and, and dignity and honesty every day. That's, that's me. I, uh, you know, I try to be honest and transparent as much as I can. And I think those are virtues that people in general can benefit from. But one thing that I think about being a man, but also being a person is, is that authenticity. And we talked about it really at the, at the early stage of this, of the session. And it's being authentic to who you are, your values and your beliefs and trying to create impact. I'm always, I always think, what sort of impact, what value have I, have I added in somebody's life? What, even if it's just one person, that's enough for me, you know? And one of my favorite quotes, uh, my all-time favorite quotes, probably a life quote for me is the one by Hemingway. And he, he talks about um, this idea of true nobility, right? And the way he thinks about it is that he says, you know, it, it doesn't come from being be better than your fellow man or better than your fellow person, but true nobility comes from being better than your previous self being better than your yesterday self, right? And that for me kind of encapsulates probably what it is to be a person and a man that's been better than your previous and your flawed self every day being better than that person. Um, so I don't know whether that's specifically male dominated or to be a man, but definitely to be a better person. Awesome. Thanks for having me up. I really appreciate it. Tēnā koutou Thank you for listening today. Please remember our website is www.becomingtane.men that is becomingtane.men and our email is info at becomingtane.men You can connect with us on Facebook at becomingtane. We also are now on Instagram. Yee-hee! You can find us at becomingtane. As always, please subscribe and share. You can tell your whanau and friends that we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. Again, we'd like to recognise Aaron Moiki and Kano Sadler for your work that you do for our podcast. Much respect and love to you guys. I am forever in your debt. As I mentioned earlier, next week's episode will be our last of the Waikato season. Our guest for next week is Nick Reed. Nick has a fantastic story and a story that many men can relate to. So please mark in your calendar our final episode on August 31st with Nick. It will be a goodie. To finish our episode today, I want to remind you that the Becoming Tani podcast is about sharing men's stories and growing great guys. Modi order.